This podcast and its content are designed and intended to provide a place for conversation. Topics and advice covered in this podcast should not be taken as professional medical advice or emotional or spiritual counsel. If you or a loved one need professional help, they should seek a licensed professional. The views covered and discussed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of WCSG Radio or Cornerstone University. Ideas presented are not necessarily endorsed by WCSG Radio or Cornerstone University. Welcome to Through Rough Waters, a biblically-based mental health podcast presented by WCSG and supported by West Michigan Wellness Group. I'm your host, Zach Allen, and joining me is my co-host, Kevin DeCam. Kevin, how are you today? It's always great to be here, Zach. Also joining us this episode from West Michigan Wellness Group is James Murray. James attended Moody Bible Institute, where he majored in youth ministry, then attended Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, which, by the way, like WCSG, is a part of Cornerstone University here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and received his Master's of Divinity and Counseling. James specializes in treating anxiety in children and teens. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me. So today we are continuing our series on anxiety. If you haven't listened to the last two episodes, might be a good idea to hit pause here, go back and listen as we explore what anxiety can look like in children and how parents can help their kids. We've already covered early childhood and those adolescence years, and today we're going to begin to explore the teenage years and high school. Before we go too much further, I want to spend some time meditating on some scripture. We've talked about how anxiety is something that all of us will feel at times in our lives. Some of us, most of us, I'd say it comes and goes with experiences, but for some of us, our brains just seem to be predisposed to feeling this way. For those of us who've chosen to follow Jesus and been filled with the Holy Spirit, God's given us this promise in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Having read that, knowing that to be true, we can still feel anxious, even with the Holy Spirit inside of us. What would you say to someone who knows that God can take away our fears and our anxiety, yet we still feel that way? So I think for me, I'm kind of, part of it is a Bible nerd, right? MDiv, being a Cornerstone grad, all of that. Uh, So for me, a professor of mine always said, context, context, context. Uh, So with this, obviously, it's Paul talking to Timothy, and Timothy was anxious at the time, and rightfully so. Chaos in the church, early church, Paul's in prison, So it's right to feel anxious at that time. And I think Paul was kind of like the early therapist, like the first church therapist of like, hey, Timothy, like, don't forget, here's some coping skills, like power, love, self-discipline. So I think that those were some like really good coping skills in the early church of, yes, we're going to feel anxious, like we're not in a perfect world. It's a broken, sin-cursed world. But here's your skills to remember. Remember that God gave us these. Uh, so I think re- relying on those when we're feeling anxious, because it's going to happen. We're, we're in a sin-cursed world, and so we are going to feel anxious. But remember what the Scripture says. Remember that we do have this power. We have this love. We have this self-discipline, and the way Paul even put it, we have the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that's coming alongside of us. Uh, So it's not saying, Paul's not saying, like, you will never feel anxious, like, we're going to be in a totally perfect world. Like, similar as he would say, like, we're not going to feel suffering or pain. Like, no, it's going to happen. We're going to feel that. But remember God. Remember the Scriptures. Remember 
what you've been taught. And so I think a lot of that goes back to, all right, in those times, here you go. Here's what you rely on. James, I love how you said that. And I had the same thought. Uh, again, Paul is not, first of all, I like the idea of Paul as the first therapist in the early church. That's good. Um, and he's not saying to Timothy, you won't experience fear or timidity or that you'll only experience power and love and you'll only practice self-discipline. Um, it, it seems to be, again, an invitation. You have the spirit within you that is one of power and love and self-discipline and the spirit that is within you, the spirit of God within you is not one of fear of timidity and timidity. And, and so that's an invitation reminding us, like you said, that, uh, it is within us. And so, uh, again, not to, not to shame people, uh, or criticize people when they're experiencing those things, but just to remind them and help them shift their perspective. You also have the option of acting in courage and faith. Yeah, it's not the legalistic, like, oh, right. just pray more. Just yeah. just read the that's Bible more. Do, right? Like, that's not what Paul's getting at, like, the legalistic view. It's the, like, here's, here's what to do. Yeah, it's a reminder that we have this power available to us, and it's our sinful choice to ignore that power sometimes, but it's a, a gentle reminder that we have that with us always. All right, so as we move into kind of the heart of the matter today, we're going to be talking about these teenage years and these high school years, and we're so excited to have you with us here, James, because you are a specialist for this age group. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the kind of clients that you see and why you kind of gravitate towards working with these kids at this stage in life? Yeah, I do a lot with kind of the teenage years, like middle school, high school, early college. Like That's, that's kind of my go-to. Um, part of that is... I'm a kid at heart. I, I think that's part of it. Um, and I just have always, youth ministry made an impact on me growing up. Uh, heck, my youth pastor was the best man in my wedding. So that kind of shows the impact that youth ministry has in me. Um, but then kind of going through undergrad and youth men, I got into coaching baseball, coaching volleyball. So I was in the middle school and high school and even here at Cornerstone, I was coaching the baseball team. Um, so definitely feeling that gear towards youth, towards teens. Um, and so that's a lot of the kids I see are the ones in high school getting ready to transition into college. And that's that's really my passion. That's That's what fuels me is, all right, I get to work with these young people that quite often do have this this fire and this future ahead of them, but then also some of this anxiety and struggle and all of that. Yeah, you and I actually have that in common. Not a lot of people know this. I went to college to be a high school teacher. Like, I love working with high school kids. And then God had other ideas and moved me into broadcasting. But uh, one of the reasons I kind of gravitate towards this age group is this is the age in my life when I really started to realize I've got some issues. Like I've got, I'm depressed. I've got anxiety. I was thinking about this just the other day, preparing for this episode. 10th grade was the first year that I like just didn't write a paper because I didn't feel like I could do it well. So like I'm putting myself in my shoes 20 years ago and remembering the things that made me anxious in high school, but a lot has changed in the last 20 years. So what are our students going through right now that leads them to sit on your couch in your office and have a chat with you? Where to start? There's, there's just so much. And I, I feel kind of the same way of looking back, I definitely had anxiety, like in middle school, high school of just going through so much and like where to go to school, all of that kind of stuff. And then you add school as well. Like I, as you said, I've got all of these degrees and I 
hated school. <laughs> like I was the kid like in middle school and high school. I'm like, this is awful. I don't want to be here. Like sign me up for the gym classes because it's an easy A and I like lifting weights or playing dodgeball. Like that's the easy, like I hate papers. I hate tests. I hate exams. I've been working with a lot of kids. This week has been PSAT week. And I like looked back on that. I'm like, oh yeah, I did terrible on that. Like I hated standardized testing. I hated those type of days. I was the kid in high school who's like, yeah, I'm not going to college. And yet like I went to GRTS for two degrees. I studied in Jerusalem for a year. But our kids nowadays have even more than what I was feeling back then. Like not only do they have PSAT days where your scholarship, I I was just seeing a kid yesterday afternoon after he took the PSAT, practice SAT. And he's like, oh yeah, scholarships depend on this. He's like, I needed to do well on this because I need a scholarship. And I'm like, this is a practice test. Like I didn't study for it. He's like, oh yeah, I studied all week going into this. Uh, So you've got those big tests, big exams. You've got, especially nowadays, like I was a baseball guy, clearly like coaching baseball. And, but nowadays it's, if you're a baseball guy, you're a baseball guy year round. It's nonstop. Like I, I coached a kid a few years ago that had a pitching coach, a hitting coach, a lifting coach, a fielding coach, uh, his parents even got him a nutritionist. Like he had like six coaches that he was seeing during the week. And it's like, well, how do you have time to do school, do friends? Uh, And then you have friends on top of that. Just another, I'm going to sound kind of old here with this, with this phrase, but FOMO, like this fear of missing out. Like, I feel like that phrase was like five years ago, but it's still, a thing today of kids want to be so involved in athletics, in school, with friends, in band, whatever, whatever it is, they want to do, do, do. And we don't have that much time in our days. Um, I, I was just looking back, our, our high school that I was coaching at just had homecoming last week. And thinking through like that week of, all right, you've got Monday night's the bonfire and Tuesday is powder puff. And then you have to build a float with your class. And then you have to do a lip sync with your class. And then you have the football game and you have the parade and you have the dance. Oh, and you're on a sports team. So add this on there. Oh, and next week is PSAT. So add studying on there. Oh yeah. And there's this social media thing. Like, you've got to check your Snapchat, your Facebook. Facebook's not for kids nowadays, though. That's that's my other old piece. But Snapchat and X, not Twitter. But there's this constant, like, I need to know what my friends are doing as well. So there's just this these pulls everywhere. And then you get the handful of kids that are working on top of that. Uh, I just had a youth group kid. She paid for her own car for her 16th birthday, but works a ton on top of that with going to school, with doing all of this kind of stuff. And it's just a lot weighing us down. And as you go further into high school, not only are you juggling all of that, then it's, you feel the anxiety of where are you going to school? What are you going to major in? What are you going to do when you grow up? It's this constant barrage of parents, teachers, people at church, people at work, wherever it is, who are constantly kind of bugging you of, so what's next? 
And if you're a junior, I work with a lot of like junior seniors and they're like, I don't know what's next. I, I haven't thought about it yet. And then that just adds more anxiety of like, well, maybe I should be. Maybe I need to look into schools. Maybe I need to look into scholarships. So there's just this constant pull of what's next? Are you doing enough? Are you involved wherever you're at? And so no wonder kids are struggling with this anxiety. There's so much going on where I feel like I didn't have that much. Like, yeah, I played baseball, but baseball was a spring sport. Maybe I'd start like picking up a ball in like wintertime and throw an open gym, but that was about it. I wasn't doing baseball really year round. It's a spring and summer sport. Like, what do you do in the wintertime outside of a gym? Uh, so options and opportunities are, are great, right? Oh, it, yeah. It's wonderful that we have so much available to us, but there's this pressure to do all of it. And then, like you said, social media, not only is there this pressure for kids to do it all, it's all also on display. I have to record that I'm doing it and I have to make sure that I you know, I'm seen in a favorable light while I'm doing it. I have to make sure everybody's aware that I'm doing it. It's like this whole uh, extra layer over the whole reality that like life is just a lot busier right now. My, she's in middle school, but my, my youngest, our daughter, uh, said to me the other day, we were talking about, you know, how there's in many ways, not many differences between when I was a child. Yes, it was centuries ago, right? But there's not that many differences. And she said to me, Dad, you couldn't handle being a middle schooler in this day and age. And I started to argue. And then I actually stopped and I said, I think you're right. I, I actually think you're right. I'm not sure that I could. There is so much pressure. That's what I'm hearing you say, James. I just these many of these things in and of themselves are good, but there's so much pressure to do it all and to perform at this really high level. And then to make sure everybody knows what you're doing and how well you're doing at it. I, I can't imagine. No, no wonder our yeah. kids are anxious. Yeah. So, and I kind of want to pivot to you on this a little bit, Kev, cause you've got kids that are in this age range I right do. now. We have four teenagers at home yeah. right now. So like, Hearing all the things James talking about, I got exhausted just listening to it. So like <laughs> as a parent of kids in this age group, what are some things that parents can do to try to help with this overwhelming kind of, I want to do everything? Like, Yeah, boy, that is a pivot. Um, and if you want to know the right answer for what to do, maybe you should have asked somebody else. I, I don't know that we have this figured out, but I will say there's a few things we try to be intentional about. I'll start with the hardest, which is to do things differently than everybody else is doing them. Uh, this is something I talk to a lot of people about. I would say even just in the last year, I've heard so many people one way or the other say something along the lines of, this isn't how we thought we would do it, or this isn't even how we want to be doing it, to have our kids this busy and involved in this many things. But when it's what almost everyone is doing, this isn't an excuse, but the reality is it's very difficult to swim against that flow. Mm -hmm. One obvious example, when, when all of one of my children's friends is signed up for some sport or activity. You don't want to be the parent who without great reason or for certainly one that they understand says, no, we're not going to do that. Right. That, that's difficult uh, for them. Right. It's difficult for yeah. us. And so there is this sort of cultural momentum that pushes hard in these directions and it's very hard to push against it. It, it just is. Again, that's not an excuse, um, certainly for doing things that are outright wrong. It's, it's not an excuse, but, but it does make it 
really hard. Um, one of the things, and, and we do choose some things. There are some things we set out. There's, there's a couple of things we don't, we are a very busy family. We're one of those families, but there are a few of those things. No offense to your client. I, my kids won't have a nutritionist. Um, <laughs> there's just a few things we say no to. There's, there's a few th- ways that we cut back. The other thing is making sure that we put that much more emphasis than on the things that might've been more normal, uh, and a part of regular family routine during a time where we weren't so busy. So family dinners, we, we really do our best when we can, not just to eat together, but while eating together to use that to be a time where we check in, we yeah. communicate, uh, we model, uh, you know, we, we talk about what's actually going on rather than just running in opposite directions all the time. And I think the other one um, that I, I, you know, my kids are going to listen to this someday and uh, be clear about, uh, and honest about how probably we didn't do so well on this, but I do hope one thing that they could say is, um, that we tried to emphasize who they were and what they were worth and how much they were loved and where they belong, right? Identifying those big things that are true regardless of what they're doing and how they're doing at it. Right. So I hope, I hope that my kids know now and will be able to recognize someday that we loved them and that they were a part of our family and they were loved by God and they had value and that they mattered because of who they are and not because of what they did. Um, when there's so much cultural pressure on that emphasis and, th- and there always has been, but I think it's more than ever. And again, it's all on display now, right? How well you did on the team, whether you made it, what your stats are, uh, you know, how good you looked in the photo. Did you have as much fun as we did on family vacation, right? There's just so much pressure on that. And, and I, um, I hope that our kids know that their worth and their value comes regardless of what that looks like to everybody else. So I think that's just, you know, that's aspirational, probably more than functional, but but just remember that we're putting as much focus there as well. I want to throw it back to you, James. I was putting myself in my high school shoes as you were running through all of the, we've got to think about what's next in college and this and this and this and that. When I think back to 20 years ago, I feel like I perceived all my friends were doing great with that. Like they were all like, they had it all figured out. They could have their job and they could do this and they could date and they could have like, they could manage all these things. And it looked like they had no issues. Whereas I'm drowning over here. What would you say to the kid who would be in that shoes right now? Maybe listening, feeling like their friends are the ones that have it all put together. And they're the only ones that are struggling right now. And I think that still is a struggle today of like you, I meet with kids that they're like, oh, I, I feel like I'm the only one going through this. And then I'm like, wait a second. You realize, like, I saw a kid earlier today who's in the same shoes as you. Uh, so it's it's kind of bringing to light of, like, no, you're you're not alone. There's, there's a lot of people going through this. And I think nowadays, too, it's, it's more okay to talk about this, especially in the school setting where kids kind of know and can feel – the stress among each other. Like they, they know things aren't great. They, they feel it. They see it. Like there's free to talk about it. Exactly. There's this common ground now where like, yeah, I, I can talk about, I can talk about having a therapist. Like my friend, Oh, my friends know I have a therapist. Like there's so many kids that like, they're okay with that. They're comfortable with that. It's not taboo anymore. It's not like a, the stigma of like, oh, you have a therapist? What's wrong with you? It's no, like, 
it's okay. Yeah, like it's okay. I'm working through this. And I've even had some kids who are like, yeah, my friend wants to see you now. Like my friend wants a therapist because I'm working through this and they're not. Yeah, I so, think I've heard you say before, Kevin, Gen Z made therapy cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I think my joke was it's the one thing I give them credit yeah. for. <laughs> Millennials maybe before even Gen Z. But yeah, it went from taboo to acceptable to even popular or cool. Mm-hmm. And, and we can swing too far with that. But you were just saying this, James, it's, it's not about doing it because it's cool. It's doing it because someone can recognize that it's helpful yeah. and that it's healthy. Right. And it's okay to admit that I also go to the gym. I also have a dentist, right? It's, it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's needed at times. And I think especially schools are doing a better job of it as well of there's, counselors in the school not just guidance counselors like there's mental health counselors in the schools now and like oh that's acceptable now when I was in school it was we had our guidance counselor I wouldn't talk to them about like my anxiety I'll talk to them about what I want to go to college for but Mm -hmm. I'm not bringing up like oh yeah I'm struggling with this work school life balance like you didn't do that where now it's like oh I can go to this therapist in the school as well and and work through it so even if though even though there might be more pressure today on the average kid there's there's also maybe more opportunity there's there's more freedom to be able to talk about this and to get help so i want to go back to um the the first little anecdote you were sharing about um a client of yours who was stressing out about the psats now that's a something that would make almost anyone feel a little bit anxious what is the difference between that one life circumstance making you anxious or like you have clinical anxiety. Like if there's a, say there's a high school student listening to us right now and they're trying to figure out, do I need to go see a therapist when I talk to my parents about this? Like what's the difference between everyday life, this event is happening and I'm anxious about it versus this constant kind of clinical anxiety. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely important to kind of see the difference because I, I was the test anxious person. Um, but obviously, as as therapists, we, we kind of joke, we've got the big old diagnosis book of here's what we need to look through. What What's an actual diagnosis for anxiety? And do you meet all of this criteria? And for us, it's looking at like, okay, is, is anxiety prevalent outside of just the test once a year or the test in the fall? Like, is it, okay, are you feeling anxious about work? Am I feeling anxious about school every day? Is this a common theme? Am I feeling this more often than not? And quite often, it it is becoming that now to where, all right, I'm, I'm feeling anxious about just getting up in the morning to go to school. Forget PSAT. It's, it's a Tuesday morning and I'm not feeling school today just because this anxiety is there of I have to be around other people. I have to see this person. I have to be in this class. And it weighs on us. And then it becomes, it starts taking over our lives of, it's not just this like pit in my stomach. It's now, I'm not sleeping. I'm not eating well. I'm, I'm moody. Like I'm upset at my parents. I, the littlest thing makes me mad. I freak out on the baseball field. Like it's all of these things start to come into play as opposed to the PSAT anxiety where it's like, all right, I got the sweats going into the test. I got the pit in my stomach. I finished it. All right, I'm good. I'm going to go 
eat a snack now. I'm going to go drink a Mountain Dew, whatever it is. Like that minimal anxiety is gone where when it's the day-to-day anxiety, it's weighing every aspect of our lives. There's some really interesting research out uh, distinguishing the stress response to voluntary versus involuntary sources. And I think that's some of what you're getting at, right? Um, the if When we choose a challenge, for example, I decide to go out for the baseball team or I sign up for the PSAT, um, that's a voluntary stress. Yeah. It will create a response within the body, but the idea is if we can face it with courage and with hope. Um, first of all, it, it even initiates a different physiological response um, that is is more like rising to a challenge. So there are so there's some overlap here, but it tends to actually bring um, some comfortable emotions. I try not to talk about negative and, and positive emotions, but some comfortable emotions. And the idea is that it leads to challenging ourselves in order to initiate growth. Where involuntary stress, sort of the pre- the outside-in pressure that I didn't ask for, actually generates an entirely different physiological response, including in the brain, and it tends to lead, lead to more uncomfortable emotions. Um, even the secretion of different hormones within the brain and body, it's, it's just a, it's a fascinating topic of study. Um, but the idea with that is that is sort of deconstructive stress. It's, it's not leading to a positive outcome uh, by challenging me to grow. And there can be some overlap. It can be hard to distinguish the difference. But those two categories, I think, are important to pay attention to as well, especially when we're talking about our kids or we're parenting, right? It is what I'm signing them up for, what what I'm watching them go through, something that's eliciting a, a positive, helpful growth response, or is it something that is breaking them down and leading to, and I think that's what leads to more of the, what you call the day-to-day, the generalized anxiety, right? So I want to talk to parents now a second. So when I was 16 or so, it was pretty obvious that I was super anxious. And my mom recognized that in me. And I can remember a time where she sat me down and said, I think you need to go see someone and talk to someone about this. And I was so combative towards her said, no, there's nothing wrong. I don't want to talk about this. Like what happened? Speak to the felt like involuntary stress, (laughs) like speak to the parents who are noticing anxiety, anxious patterns in their kids and feeling just complete pushback and resistance from their students. What can parents do to kind of have that conversation and lead the student towards being receptive to help? Yeah, that's, it's definitely the 50, 50, probably nowadays of like, I see some kids that are like, I need this. I need the help. Like they, they'll even initiate the conversation with mom and dad of like, I need to talk to somebody. I need to get this off. But then there's the other 50% still where it's like, I don't need this. I'm fine. Like I'll suck it up. Like I don't want to talk to somebody. I'm, I'll just talk to my friends, whatever that is. So there's still some of that pushback. And I think for parents, it's the big piece nowadays is doing it in love and making sure it's not a forced of like, you need this, like go do this or else. It's, hey, I'm I'm noticing this. I think this will help. And again, it goes back to like the taboo piece of it's okay to talk to these people. Like these people are good at what they do. Like they're trusted. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm getting more and more that like they see my bio of like, see, he coaches sports. Like he's done this. He works with kids and teens. Like you'll be fine. He's not this 
angry person. Like it's not the, you're just going to lay there on a couch. Like it's okay. Um, So I think kind of feeling things out with that and having the loving conversation. But also I think parents can kind of lay some of the groundwork as well of, all right, they're starting to notice the anxiety. Maybe it's not to the point of seeing a therapist, but maybe it's to the point of mom and dad can give helping techniques of like, all right, here's some things that I've learned that I've heard about. Like, here's something that helps with anxiety. Like, the at-home kind of care of, mm-hmm. all right, you're, you're not going into the office, but here's something they'd probably teach you to kind of help calm yourself down, to you're feeling the anxiety, you're worked up, here, try try this. And now it's not a, oh, you had to go in and see the professional. It's, oh, mom and dad kind of helped me. Yeah. What are some of those kind of techniques that maybe a parent could help their child with? Yeah, that's, I mean... The book is a mile long of just all the different things you can do. I, I'm a big fan of like the coping skills, like especially grounding has been one of the big ones for me of bringing yourself back into the moment of too often our, our minds get going of this, that, the other, we're just go, go, go. The whole idea of grounding is bringing yourself back in. So it's being very intentional of, all right, I'm going to sit in this chair feet on the ground. And now I'm going to go through all of like the sensations I'm feeling. All right. I can feel my feet on the ground. I feel my toes kind of curled up in my shoes and kind of work your way up as well. Like, all right, I feel my back in the back of the chair. It's, it's what it's doing is shutting off the world around you. It's shutting off that anxiety. Now I'm focusing. I'm specifically focusing on my feelings of physical feelings of the floor, the chair. What am I hearing in the room? What am I smelling in the room? Uh, Maybe it's you're looking around the room as well of, all right, I'm noticing the, the cobweb in the corner of the room. It's being very intentional of, all right, I'm, I'm here. Uh, That that's one of my kind of favorite ones of just really working on the moment. Um, I Another one that it's not necessarily coping skill, but one thing that I think is very important nowadays is, is the idea of unplugging um, and turning off your phone, turning off social media, even when you are grounding, when you're doing that technique, like spending that time away from our devices because it's that's a huge form of anxiety is did i get that text message did i get that that tweet did i get whatever it is did is it coming through oh i i think i felt my phone vibrate nope just a fake vibrate like there's that anxiety where if you turn that off for a given time if it's if it's an hour if it's overnight like you don't have your phone in your room like turning off some of that anxiety as well it separates us from the present moment oh, right it, that's it and you're talking about time. mindfulness and and coming into the present moment the other thing that's happening there that James is talking about that's that's beautiful with uh within those exercises is you are in doing so then you are moving away from the fearful part of the brain and you are awakening the mindful part of the brain, right? The part of your brain that is active when we're experiencing anxiety wants to get us out of and away from the present moment, right? And so those grounding techniques serve 
it might sound silly, right? It, it, and in many ways, you could probably say it is, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel better by sitting in a chair and saying what I smell in the room. But <laughs> the power of what's happening there is you're awakening and energizing the part of the, your brain that is aware of your present circumstance. And in the present circumstance, unless we're being chased by a grizzly bear or something, um, there's usually much less to actually be anxious about, right? And the phone or any device is really just a portal into all of that, which is outside of my present experience and causes me then to be anxious. So I think putting those two things together is, is brilliant, even in terms of shifting our, our brain chemistry towards less anxiety. Yeah. And if I can say grounding is a thing that I do personally when I feel anxious. And like, if you're listening to this and you're, and you're thinking exactly what Kev just said, this feels weird. Why don't you just try it? Because you'll be amazed at what happens in your brain. So before we go too far from this prompt of like parents talking to their kids, Kev, as a parent and as a therapist, um, what are some ways that you would advise parents to kind of lead their children that might be feeling anxious towards the help that they need? Yeah. I, I mean, I would start by reiterating what James said, which is, which is really helpful. I, th- I think what you're talking about there is, is normalizing the behavior and normalizing counseling as a response to the behavior. Um, I think modeling as well, being able to say, Hey, this is something I do and I find it to be good for me and healthy for me versus saying, this is something you should do because there's something wrong with you, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is how every kid's going to hear it anyway. Right. Yeah. Again, brain science, the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until well into the twenties. And so when you're talking to an adolescent, they don't, they have a limited capacity to use that part of their brain in a way that allows them to abstract and to see themselves outside of their current situation. Um, Therefore, when you talk to a kid, and especially I would say a teenager, everything is about them, right? Teenagers are egocentric. Mm-hmm. They're sort of, we are as infants, we are the center of the universe, and then we discover the world around uh, 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 outside of ourselves. Uh, and then we get a little better at it, and then we become teenagers and we revert back to basically a next layer of doing the exact same thing. And the whole world revolves around me. So if you're talking to me about something being wrong, it means it's my fault or I'm the problem. Yeah. It's why it's so hard to talk to kids in a way that they don't hear that way. So anything you can do to recognize that um, and uh, and help them to understand what you mean other than that, right? That this doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. This doesn't mean that there's, you know, there's something wrong with you. It just means that there's something we need to address. And I think that the last piece that I would add is, um, you know, teenagers have this beautiful developmental need to learn to argue. It's, it's just, I mean, having four teenagers at home, I can just tell you, it's such a fun thing to experience and to walk through with them um, because they have to get good at it, right? No longer is there is the world where I just accept at face value everything that parents and teachers and adults say to me. Mm-hmm. I now have to distinguish my own opinions and sense of self outside of that. And one way to do that is to start to argue. Uh, and, and start to take different approaches. And so one of the ways to not get caught in that trap too is to speak in a way that makes it a little more difficult to argue with. So back to, you know, if you're observing a behavior in your child that you think might need some attention, especially with professional help, rather than say you're anxious all the time, to which they could very easily say, no, I'm not, mm-hmm. right, or some other really intelligent response, to say, hey, I noticed that last semester your grades were at this level and this semester they're at this level, right? I noticed that you used to come downstairs last month uh, and, and engage with the family at dinner and talk to us. I noticed that now you seem to isolate a little more in your room. Now, again, they're teenagers. They might still say, no, I don't, or something like that. But I think trying to use objective data 
as opposed to subjective opinion makes it a little less uh, likely, a little more difficult for a teen to uh, just push back. And you're, you're sort of then helping them to see what you see, right? Yeah. I just noticed this. Do you notice this, right? And it sets you up maybe a little better. Uh, if there's enough resistance, it, it may still be there. But I think it sets up a little better to be able to say, well, that, that seems like a problem, doesn't it? What should we do about that? So we've talked to parents so far in this episode. We've talked to teenagers that might be feeling anxious. But there's one group that we haven't talked to yet. And uh, you mentioned, James, a little bit earlier, this generation feels feelings a little bit better. So I want to talk to maybe a student who's listening right now who they're not feeling anxious themselves, but someone they love, one of their best friends is clearly going through something. What is something that a friend can do when they notice one of their friends seeming to, to be going through some anxiety? One thing I've really noticed with quite a few of my clients, and, and we've even talked about this in our church setting, the ministry of presence, being there. Yeah. And I have so many clients that do such a good job at that with their friends. Kids feel it. They feel when their friends are struggling, mm-hmm. and it's being there with them. Preach. Like, I've had clients like show up at their friend's house of, yeah, I know they were going through it, so I was there for them. Just there. And I'm like, yeah. good for you. I'm like, you want my job? <laughs> like, you're you're in high school, but you want my job? Like, that's yeah, that's that, awesome. That's not hard. That's not something you have to train and prepare yourself to do to just be with someone that you care about. Yeah, we try to make it more complicated than it needs to be, don't we? So now we want to spend some time with our listeners. It's time for some Q and A. Uh, if you have a question you'd like us to answer, you can submit it anonymously. WCSG.org. Just search for podcast. Click on Through Rough Waters. You can also submit your question through email. Just email through Rough Waters at WCSG.org. Today's question is from Kendall. Kendall says, "I'm afraid of failure, which often causes me to fail because I get worked up from my anxiety. This affects me in both school and in sports. What can I do to help change my mindset?" and make me less anxious? That's definitely the common question nowadays, especially sports and school and all of that. Heck, I'm even still there. I I play a lot of rec league softball, and I, like, work myself up in a game that means nothing. Like, I I get a T-shirt if we win the whole thing. (laughs) Like, But that, that struggle of if I fail, I let my team down, I let my friends down, like I let the coach down. There's this stress and the anxiety that comes with that. And the school piece, the, if I fail this test, there goes my college future. There goes my scholarships. There goes this, that. And it's a very real feeling. So many are going through that. So many feel that, uh, And it's working through, all right, how do I combat that? Because then it is the mind game of, I've worked with plenty of athletes who uh, I have this fear going into this competition and I'm going to cross country. I, I, I know I need to hit this time. The anxiety's there before the meet, during the meet, and now all of a sudden I ran a personal worst. Like I, I let the team down and this competition that just eats away at us. And so to combat that, I think it kind of goes back to some of those grounding techniques of before the event, before school, before the test. And I think it's becoming more and more okay to do that. Michigan's quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, is is well known the past couple years for his 
coping techniques before games. Everybody sees him out like in the end zone with his headphones on and he's just soaking it in. He's meditating. He's not like focusing on the competition. He's he's soaking it in. There's there's a new player for the Red Sox, a young kid, and he sunbathes in like shorts, no shoes, no socks, like in the outfield before every game. In Boston. In Boston, wherever, wherever he's at. That's like his thing he does. And so it's okay to, all right, I'm not focusing on the competition right yet. I'm focusing on me. I'm, I'm bringing it back. I'm bringing it back to the moment. I'm turning off those anxious thoughts, those anxious feelings. I'm bringing it to, all right, I'm turning it off. I'm here. All right, I'm good. Now I can, now I can get into sports. I can get into the test. It's all right. I'm not, I'm not feeling as anxious now. So a lot of it goes back to that grounding, that coping skill, the mindfulness, especially nowadays when it comes to athletics, we're in high school. We're not professionals. We're, we're not getting paid for that. And I, I feel like there's so much of that stress as well of like, I need to perform. We're here to have fun too. Like I, I preach that all the time to my high school guys when I was coaching baseball, like we're the freshman baseball team. Like, what does it matter if like we win or lose or commit an error? Like we're here to have fun. Like you guys are all friends. Like this is great. Like enjoy it while you have it. That's a good reframe. And Kendall, you say it right here in your message. How do I change my mindset to make me less anxious? Already you're on the right path, recognizing that there's a mindset shift here, right? Being uh, positive, looking at the positive side. There is almost always everywhere both a positive and a negative aspect to everything that we experience. When we are fearful and when we are activated in a fearful or anxious state, we are very likely to hone in on and pay attention to the negative aspects. So just exercising the discipline of forcing uh, a perspective shift. Um, gratitude is a really good antidote to anxiety. It's very difficult to be thankful and anxious at the exact same time. So taking a look at uh, a situation, uh, when you talk about, uh, you know, getting worked up, uh, in school and sports in anticipation of this stuff, forcing yourself, if you need to write something down, get out your phone or a, or a pen and paper, the old fashioned way, and just write down what is good about what's happening right now. What am I thankful for in what is happening or what might come out of it? And, and thinking through even some of what we talked about before, is this a, is this just because this is stressful, is it a negative thing or is it actually the type of stress that will lead to my growth? Mm-hmm. Hopefully if it's in school and sports, mostly it's the latter. And so just shifting that mindset. The other thing that I would add to, and I, the topic of success versus failure is such a fascinating one for me. It, it has been for a very long time, but um, it may be a little harder in the moment, but uh, a little more proactively think through what does success even mean to you? What does failure even mean to you? It's a construct. It's very subjective. And so define, and maybe you need to redefine and frame what failure even is there. There's, I mean, look up a bunch of quotes. I looked up a couple. There's some great ones. Winston Churchill said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts, right? It's not how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get back up again. Thomas Edison, I love this one. I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that didn't work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a reframing of failure. I can look at the fact that I've failed uh, 10,000 times before I succeeded 
And in fact, if I pay really close attention to 10,000 failures, I probably won't succeed. But if I see that as a way to learn how not to do something, right? Heinz 57, uh, formula 409, right? These are all formula numbers that are, uh, defined by the number of times we screwed up before we finally figured it out. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so reframing failure, I think is a really useful thing. Do I see it as the end of the world? Like you said, James, that, you know, my whole career or future is, is based on this and that's how I'm making sense of this current quote unquote failure. Or is it a setback? Is it a free education? Is it an opportunity to learn? You know, I, I think reframing failure ahead of time really helps us encounter um, anxiety-provoking situations with a different perspective. Thank you so much for joining us for episode five of Through Rough Waters. Join us in two weeks for our next episode as we continue our series on anxiety. I want to say thank you to James and Kevin for joining us from West Michigan Wellness Group. Uh, Kevin is kind of the lead therapist of West Michigan Wellness Group. Say someone's listening to this right now and they've decided, I do need to speak to someone. I do need to reach out and start this therapy journey. How do they do that with you guys? How do they reach out? Yeah, just do it. First and foremost, we make it as easy as possible. So practically speaking, you can look us up online, westmichiganwellnessgroup.com or Google West Michigan Wellness Group. Uh, you can also give us a call directly at 600 1187-616-600-1187. And uh, we have people who would love to talk to you, are excellent at uh, figuring out what it is that you're looking for and how best to match you up with our team. We've got uh, numerous therapists with different specialties and styles and uh, our people who take those first calls do a really good job of bringing it together because it's really important to get right the first time. So reach out. We'll take it from there. James, would you mind closing us in prayer? Yeah. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to just talk, talk through our thoughts, our feelings, and be able to even just brainstorm as well, and be able to figure out how we can look to you in times of struggle and times of fear and anxiety. Um, we thank you for this space, this opportunity to do so. We thank you for your son, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your word and the promises through that. And the, the, really the coping skills in your word that you gave us. Um, as we can look to you in times of struggle and times of need. Um, we just thank you again for this space and this time. In Christ's name, amen.